course, because of uh, our sermon series uh, that we're currently working through, I've been thinking a lot about uh, last words or uh, final words that people have and why they really matter. Uh, So this week I did uh, some research um, on final words or last words, and I found some some interesting things as I researched. Have you ever heard of George Orwell? He was the the author of 1984, of Animal Farm. Uh, The last words that he wrote, not the words that he spoke, but the last words that he wrote were this, at 50, everyone has the face that he deserves. Think about that. At 50, everyone has a face that he deserves. Something to, certainly something to think about. What's ironic about that is George Orwell died at 46, so he never got to fulfill those words. Uh, Harriet Tubman, we've all heard of Harriet Tubman. She died in uh, 1913. Uh, at her death, she gathered uh, her family around her, and she began to sing at her death. And of course, her last words were, uh, swing low, sweet chariot. Did you know that? Those were her last words that were sung. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton's last words perhaps are the most impressive. He wrote this, or said this, I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have been only like a little boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then and finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, whilst a great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Now, I have to think he'd scripted that out. He'd memorized that before he said that, but those indeed were uh, his last words. Uh, the last one I discovered was, I'll try not to butcher the name, Louise Marie Theresa de Saint Maurice, Comtesse de Vercellis. All right, did you get that, that French name? Uh, she was a French noblewoman. Uh, it was said about her uh, that she passed gas while she was dying, and so her last words were, good, a, worm, a woman who can fart is not dead. Those were her last words. Uh, not quite as profound as Newton's, and of course my mother would be angry that I said that word in a sermon. <laughs> so uh, all these are evidence that uh, last words are important, and um, uh, what, they, what they do is they leave those around us with a lasting image uh, that some ways we live with for a long time. And of course, as we look at Jesus Christ, we look at uh, the same thing. We see that things are no different. And this Lenten season, what we've decided to do is look at the seven last words or phrases uh, that were uttered by Christ when he was on the cross. Now, of course, we know these aren't Jesus' last words. We know that just days later, he would be uh, resurrected from the dead, uh, that he would visit with his disciples, and so he had other words. Uh, What we also believe as Christians is that at some point, Christ will come again. He will come again at the end of all things, and certainly he will have a lot to say once he comes again. But there are these seven phrases, these seven words spoken at the cross that carry uh, tremendous significance, and we're looking at these during the Lenten season. We started uh, with uh, Christ's words of forgiveness, Uh, probably the first words he said after being hung on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, If you were with us last week, we saw Jesus' last words to a criminal who saw the value in Jesus. And Jesus looks at this criminal who had, no doubt, a very difficult and checkered past, and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. 
This morning, what I want us to see is the compassion of Christ as He speaks to His mother and to His closest friend as He hangs on the cross. So I'm going to be reading from uh, John chapter 19, just a few verses, John 19, uh, verses 23 to 27. Uh, Listen to these uh, words of God. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and they divided Him into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for the gift of worship, uh, for the opportunity to gather together as a community of faith to remind our hearts of what matters, to sing your praises, to uh, be spoken, uh, to be uh, formed by uh, readings, by the reading of Scripture, by singing of songs, by confession and assurance. We pray that as we engage in these habits each week that you would uh, form the gospel more and more in our hearts. We pray that as we approach your scripture now, as we look at these words, that he would, we would hear the voice of your spirit speaking to us, that as a result of encountering you in your word this morning, we would leave here changed, more formed into your image. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. When I was a young kid, I used to um, in, uh, visit my grandparents, and I spent a lot of time at my grandparents. I would spend the night at their house, And uh, I can remember one story from that time uh, that has often been told to me, though I don't really remember it all that well. But uh, my grandma used to tell me at one point I would just be hanging out in her house, and she had uh, this great little table at her house. It was one of those kid-sized tables that had uh, little stools, and it it was perfect for me to eat my meals and do arts and crafts and all this sort of stuff. And I loved this table. So at one point, I looked up at my grandmother, or as I'm told, probably about four years old, I looked up at my grandmother and I said, Nanny, when you die, can I have this table? And she, of course, looked at me and said, certainly, you can have this table. And don't, and you better believe it. Guess what's sitting in my basement right now? My grandparents made sure that after they passed away that I had that table, that it was in my possession. And of course, it certainly is to this very moment. So towards the end of people's life, uh, maybe even earlier, they begin uh, what is called the estate planning process, right? And in that process, my grandparents made sure that I had that table. But in this estate planning process, one of the first steps is that we usually develop a will, and that will determines uh, who will receive our assets once we have passed away. It determines uh, who will get those things. And often in the will, uh, if we have kids at a young age, uh, that talks about who gets to care for our children uh, once they are left behind. 
And so as you know, once a person passes away, there is an executor that ensures that uh, those assets are divided according to the desire of the person who has passed away. Now, when we come to Jesus' story, we recognize that Jesus was born to a very young couple, and most certainly, they were poor. And so, for most of Jesus' life, he either lived in poverty or just right around that poverty line. And so, when it came to Jesus Christ's assets and his own estate planning, there wasn't very much to it. And so as we come to our passage this morning, we see Jesus really very practically dealing with what will be left behind after his death. This wasn't unusual for uh, people who were being publicly executed. Uh, Back in Jesus' day, there really weren't any estate planners or lawyers, and so at at a moment of someone's death, they would simply declare what their desires were. And for someone who was being publicly executed, one of their jobs on the cross was to state what their desires were for their assets and those they care for after they passed away. And so that's exactly what we see Jesus doing in our text here this morning. First, we see what Jesus wants to be done, uh, what his desires are for his meager assets, and next we see what Jesus wants to be done about his family. We first learn about Jesus' clothing, and that might seem to be sort of insignificant details, but all the gospel writers talk about this as Jesus was crucified. We know from uh, the pattern of history and from the scriptures that Jesus would have been stripped naked in order to be hung upon a cross. The Romans designed it this way in order to heighten the shame of a criminal, one being crucified, and so this would be a moment of complete exposure for Christ. Uh, This would be a moment of heightened humiliation. And so he would be stripped of his clothing, and the executioners, those that were uh, responsible for hanging Jesus on the cross, they were the ones who had the opportunity to claim his clothing. But of course, what we learn from our passage is that there were only four Roman guards at that point, but Jesus had five elements of clothing. And so each one of those Roman guards gets one element of his clothing, but there was one left behind, a tunic that was seamless, and so the guards simply cast lots to see who would get this final piece of Jesus's clothing. Now, the gospel writer John is very careful to remind us that this whole thing, even though it might seem simple and might seem mundane or procedural, this whole thing was actually scripted out. If you read Psalm 22, it says this, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is uh, the first time, but certainly not the last time, that the words of Psalm 22, go back and read them, that the words of Psalm 22 will be remembered at the foot of the cross. And so when it was all done, all of Jesus' physical assets were spoken for. They were gone. Again, no hours long of allocation, no executors, no lawyers, no family squabbles. It had to only last just a few seconds, and Jesus didn't even get to decide where his assets were going to go. And so then Jesus next speaks about what is to be done 
regarding his family. After all, these are very practical matters. But before we talk about that, it's important for us to understand the scene that John is painting for us as Jesus uh, is, is saying these last words. It's important to set the scene once again. Of course, the Jewish and Roman authorities had conspired together to have Jesus arrested, to have him beaten, and to have him crucified. He's led out of Jerusalem. Uh, he is hung outside of the city on a hill that is called Golgotha. And as we saw last week, as he is hung on the cross, he is being mocked brutally. The Jews are mocking him. The Romans are mocking him. Everyday citizens are passing by. They are mocking Christ. They are spitting upon him as he hung on the cross. And so John is very careful in the midst of this whole scene to help us see who else was there, that, that the crowd itself wasn't entirely antagonistic towards Jesus. Now, this was certainly no place for a mother to be, but of course John tells us that Mary, Jesus' mother, was there at the foot of the cross. The apostle, the gospel writer John, the one who's writing these very words, he's there too. He tells us that Mary's sister is there as well. That may or may not have been John's mother, um, but we know that she is there as well. And then, of course, we know that Mary Magdalene is there. Mary Magdalene, who had this powerful encounter with Jesus Christ in which uh, seven demons were cast out of her, she is there as well at the foot of the cross. Now, all of these women, plus John, are there at tremendous risk to their own lives. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was not safe for them to be associated with one who is to be crucified, and yet, despite the risk, they couldn't help but being there with Jesus during his final moments. With the whole crowd mocking and jeering him, they had to be a different voice who would be there for Jesus in his final moments. And so that's why John tells us who's there. But don't, don't miss who is absent, because there's a lot of people who are absent as well. Jesus' other family, uh, his brothers, perhaps even sisters, they had all, during Jesus' public ministry, rejected Jesus. They didn't want anything to do with him. And then even in this moment, they refused to stand with Jesus and even with Mary, their mother, at the foot of the cross. They were nowhere to be found. Of course, the apostles, outside of John, the apostles, they were nowhere to be found either. They don't seem to have been there at the foot of the cross. The hundreds of followers and disciples of Jesus who were there when he taught, who were there when he performed miracles, who were there when he healed other people, none of them were there at the foot of the cross. And so here is the Son of God, the Word made flesh, the King of kings, and yet remarkably, surprisingly, he is alone as he hangs on the cross. All of these things Jesus is absorbing on the cross, the abandonment, the mockery, the jeers, all these things he's absorbing along with the excruciating pain of being crucified. And yet even in this moment, as he's absorbing all of these things, even in this moment, it seems as if he is caring only for those people 
whom he is leaving behind. You see, for most of us, when we are in pain, we have this great temptation to become exhaustingly selfish, don't we? Right? It's hard for us to to see past our own pain and our own frustration and our own sadness, and so we become insufferably selfish in the midst of our pain, and yet we come to Jesus, and He seems to only be showing concern for those whom He is leaving behind. And in that moment, we see a mother that is given a son. Look at verse 26. Woman, behold your son. Mary, it seems, is given John, this faithful follower of Jesus, one of his closest apostles. Mary is given John as a son. Of course, John seems to be the only one willing to be with Jesus in this moment, the only one willing to follow Jesus in the midst of his death, and so Mary is given John as a son. But what we also see in verse 27 is that a son is given a mother. Verse 27, it says, Behold your mother. And We learn that John is given this responsibility to care for Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, in the ancient world, of course, um, uh, this is different than what is normal. Uh, What we know from Christian history is that Mary's husband, Joseph, most likely died at a very young age. We don't know exactly when, but we do know that he wasn't present at Jesus' death. So many believe that Joseph, Mary's husband, had died at some point. And so because of that, when a husband died culturally in Jesus' day, uh, the care for a mother would fall to the eldest son, which of course was Jesus himself. And so then that begs the question, now that Jesus is about to die, who would care for Mary? Now it should have been Jesus' siblings, right? It should have been Jesus' brothers and perhaps sisters, but it seems as if they had all rejected Jesus systematically. And then, of course, because of that, they were rejecting Mary as well in her moment of solidarity with her oldest son. And so Christ's death would have left Mary in a very vulnerable position. She would have been vulnerable to all sorts of victimization in this culture. And so Jesus, knowing all this, wanted to make sure that his mother would be safe, wanted to make sure that she would be cared for, and of course this responsibility is happily given to John the Apostle. And so what we see here is that Mary and John, they are committed to each other's care. They are enfolded together in this spiritual family by Jesus Christ himself. But before we move on, we have to think about Mary for a moment in this situation. Put ourselves in Mary's shoes. We often, of course, focus on Jesus' pain on the cross, but just imagine the emotional pain that Mary was experiencing in this moment, having to watch her son be crucified. I have to think that Mary, in this moment, was thinking back to an event that had happened 30 or so years before this. Because in Luke chapter 2, we hear about Jesus being presented in the temple shortly after his birth. 
And as Jesus is being presented in the temple, this stranger comes up to Mary and Joseph, and we know uh, that his name was, was Simeon. And he says something very curious to Mary and Joseph in that moment. He says to them, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And then looking at Mary, he says these words. He says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now, in this moment, of course, we know that Mary wasn't physically pierced with a sword. But in this moment, you have to think that Simeon's words, his prophecies, were coming true for Mary. She was suffering the pain of seeing her son unjustly executed. She was seeing her son nailed to a cross. She was seeing her son being mocked and spit upon, and she would be there when her son breathed his last breath. As they say, no parent should have to watch their children die, and yet this would be Mary's cross to bear in this moment. And so Mary and John, Mary and Magdalene, Mary, Mary's sister, all of these players are at the foot of the cross. They simply become faces that are lost in a loud and nasty and cacophonous crowd. And yet all of them, all that were there, had come to behold the Son. They had come to behold Jesus Christ. Now, friends, you and I live thousands of years after this moment. We live thousands of years after the crucifixion, and yet all of us at some point need to find ourselves at the foot of the cross beholding the Son of God. Because just as those two disciples had to make a decision about Jesus, each one of us needs to find ourselves at the foot of the cross beholding Jesus and weighing what that means for our own personal lives. We have to come to terms with the pain. We have to come to terms with the estrangement. We have to come to terms with the loneliness of that moment for Jesus Christ. But ultimately, we have to come to terms with the real reason that Jesus is hanging there on the cross, the real reason that God chose to die a sinner's death. We have to come to terms with, of course, the physical pain that Jesus experienced on the cross, but we also have to realize the pain that came from the judgment and the condemnation that Christ was suffering, the, the judgment and the condemnation that each and every one of us deserve for our sin. You see, ultimately what we realize is that, that it wasn't really the Romans that nailed Jesus to the cross. Nor was it the Jews that ultimately nailed Jesus to the cross. It was our sin. It was our debt that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. And so, behold the Son, the one who was crucified for your sin and for my sin. Behold the Son, by faith accept this gift of grace that was made possible in that moment, because after all, it was his estrangement that, it made it, that made it possible for you and I 
to be enfolded. And so, behold the Son, because of His death, you and I, we get to become sons. And so, find forgiveness, find grace, find compassion at the foot of the cross.